What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We guard so much from what we share, even with those we love the most. And it's sort of how we maintain our relationships in some ways. If you're a kind person, I think a lot of that kindness comes from like... Protecting Yeah, them. protecting them and, and deciding what they shouldn't and what they should hear. On this week's episode, I speak with Meredith Westgate about her debut novel, The Shimmering State which centers around Lucian and Sophie, two patients who meet at a rehab facility in Venice Beach called The Center, after an experimental memory drug called memoroxin warps their lives. Lucian and Sophie have no memory of how they got to The Center or why they feel so drawn to one another. Is it attraction or is it something they cannot remember from before? Meredith and I also talk about the pitfalls of wanting to know what our loved ones really think about us and the uncomfortable power dynamics at play when trying to break into Hollywood as a young woman. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up. I'm so excited to have Meredith Westgate on Lit Up, finally. We are doing this in person. Meredith, thank you for being here on the Upper East Side. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to be together. And I was thinking last night, um, I think we met back in 2016, which is crazy to think about now. But ever since then, I've listened to Lit Up and just like dreamed of the day that we could talk together. So it's so exciting that it's finally here. Well, I remember looking over at you and you always working away so diligently and then it came out that you were working on your debut novel. And it's incredible to think that this is the novel. Yeah, it's nuts. Because like, I remember that time I would ask you, who do you have on this like this week? Who's in? And they were always my favorite authors. And it was so exciting to sort of track that alongside. And at that point, I, had, I think I had just finished my first draft of this novel. And I remember thinking like, maybe soon. And now here we are in 2021. And there've been all these different revisions since then. And 
the world has changed so much since then in a way that feels like fate because a lot of that really found its way into the book. And so it's been like a long journey, but I, it's so cool to come full circle and be together now and, and think of all the ways that it really, I think it needed to take that much time. Um, well, we better talk about yeah. this incredible book. It's called The Shimmering State. And it's about two patients, two people that have met and find each other again, Lucian and Sophie, and they're in recovery at a facility called The Center. After an experimental memory drug warps their lives. Um, can you tell us about this drug? When I first sort of came up with like the kernel of the idea for this book, um, it was a short, it was for a short story. I started in 2012 and it was inspired a lot by sort of how I saw social media affecting our lives and how it was causing us to almost like externalize memory and, you know, in the moment, take ourselves out of the actual experience of, a, of the moment and what the memory would be to sort of capture it and then share it and like the sort of passive consumption of memories that something like Instagram was just beginning. I was seeing the potential for that. And now, of course, we've accepted that into our everyday lives as such a given. But at that time, I was really struck by the idea of like doing something for the memory, which is, you know, a photograph or a video, and then what it means to to sit by and sort of consume other people's memories, you know, from home or from the couch or, or wherever. Um, and so it evolved from there into something that was more focused on like the the perspective shift that you can capture in, in a memory, what it would mean. Because what I'm interested in so much in fiction is like playing with perspective. And as a literary device, the pill became this like really cool way to take someone out of their very narrow perspective that we all have as ourselves and have a moment, like what would it mean to have a moment in someone else's? There can be these huge sort of life altering memories and moments that can shift the trajectory of your life and what would it mean if you went back and saw that from the other side? You know, how could that shift your sense of self? Thinking about Instagram and Twitter, mm -hmm. it just reminded me that we delete those mm -hmm. memories when they don't serve us anymore. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm so interested in that kind of like curation of memory that social media has sort of been leading us towards. Like I've looked back sometimes through my feed and, and noticed how just sort of sentimental it makes me feel. And then I sometimes catch myself remembering the actual moment and think, that is such a gloss over like the actual experience of that time. But I'm almost seduced by my own curation of it into remembering it differently. I think it's actually changing the way our brains work. And I, I think it's really scary. Um, like I, I loved what you said also about um, removing a memory because I think that that is something that when I was doing my MFA program, I, I was researching for like sort of the critical thesis side of when I was starting this book, just to make sure that some of the like science in the book checks out in, in the most basic level. I really want it to be more of a, a literary device. But there is a lot of research being done for like war veterans or people with you know, any kind of PTSD of like eventually potentially being able to remove or target and remove those memories or activate them differently. You know, if it goes beyond that, would you make the choice to remove something that has caused trauma or that you'd rather, even just an awkward moment you'd rather forget? Or is that something that 
you know, we're, we're built on for better or worse. And, and I'm really interested in this idea of like, does the body remember even if you would remove that kind of memory? Because if you bump into a table or get into a car accident and your body's bruised, even if you could somehow remove the memory of that trauma, your body would still hold the, the, the damage from it. And so it's like this interesting thing to play with. The drug in your book is called memoroxin, which mm-hmm. sounds so familiar that it must exist. Mm-hmm. What are the properties of this drug specifically? So the drug in the book is developed to treat things like PTSD or Alzheimer's or even depression, anxiety. Dr. Sloan mentions at one point that she uses it um, with her patients for like marriage counseling even and empathy trainings. So it's sort of this drug that functions as by extracting and then delivering a patient's memories back to them. The idea is that that kind of activation of one's own memories could be helpful for all sorts of mental illness. And for example, with Alzheimer's, the way that the drug ostensibly works is that it is sort of flooding the patient with their own memories from throughout their lives in the hopes of activating the synapses in the brain that become covered in plaque as Alzheimer's patients suffer from. It can also be used to target and remove memories for a patient that's dealing with PTSD. For a patient who suffers from depression or anxiety, it can be used as sort of exposure therapy. Dr. Sloan using it for sort of empathy exposure therapy part of what I think is beautiful about a drug like this, even though it obviously has potential downsides, is is sort of everyone could benefit from being exposed to another's perspective. So, and it could be used more broadly for someone who sort of suffers from not having empathy. And I think so many problems in the world could be solved by sort of taking someone out of their perspective and, and seeing things from another perspective. Let's talk about the center because it's set in Malibu and it definitely reminds me of how I imagined these celebrity rehabs to be that were always in glamorous parts of the world. Did that enter into how how you visualized and brought this center to life? I think one day we were driving up the coast um, past Malibu and I saw one of these centers it clicked into place that that, especially since it's set in LA, that style of it is almost like a meditation retreat. It's very minimal and very sort of organic, a very Los Angeles version of what like a rehabilitation center would look like. I was really interested in exploring the disconnect between being at one of those centers and out of the context of the rest of your life and what would happen if, if two people met like that. You know, how does, how does a relationship and how does like human connection sort of function in a, in a space detached from the rest of one's life? And of course, it was also inspired in large part by witnessing the opioid crisis and the fallout of a drug that's positioned as the miracle drug because it just inevitably feels like a dangerous proposition. When the book starts, they're already seeing the fallout from, from recreational use of MEM. And what are the rules of this center? So when one arrives at the center, they are required to give away any kind of possessions that they have with them, their cell phone, laptops, books, in Lucian's case, you know, his camera. And then they, those things are taken away and you put on a very minimal uniform. And one of the key um, rules at the center is that there's no name. So everyone sort of exists in this like equal anonymous kind of state. And 
And it's one of the things that I think keeps it feeling very neutral for a lot of people and completely free from potential triggers. So you think about how memory works, you know, anything could be a potential trigger, even like smell that might be on someone's book. I think part of it is just to kind of neutralize any triggers while the memory treatment takes. And then once a patient at the center is reinstated as themselves and cleared of all foreign memories, they're able to leave and then can, you know, process those kinds of triggers in the future as a normal past memories. There's also something fascinating in the treatment and it's called cleaning this stage that you can choose if you like to have certain memories completely removed and I think we all think when we're reading the book like what memories would I want to remove you definitely play with these ideas of consent versus willingly taking something was that specifically something you wanted to play with no one who's at the center like can actually remember taking them so it's this interesting play with like, wh- how could I have done this? I wouldn't have done this. And I think Lucian and Sophie both feel that way. And only one of them actually chose to. And, and so it's interesting to to be sort of unconvinced of even your own, like, will to taking something like this drug. It reminded me even of women being slipped, like, date rape drug or something. And, like, the shame that comes from not understanding what happened and how, like, that's such a burden onto the woman to like figure it out on her own and to sort of feel shame over that, even though it's completely out of their control. And so for Sophie, I really wanted her to be wrestling with that along with the sort of secret suffering that she was going through. I was trying to sort of play with both sides of that and and that almost as like a metaphor for, for um, someone dealing with mental illness or assault or something like that and the way that her exterior appearance sort of hides it and the way that she can balance that for only so long but the attempt to do that as someone who's very controlled and sort of a perfectionist in the rest of her life well she's also a ballerina Mm -hmm. and she is the principal dancer at the los angeles ballet while trying to also manage a serving job at the chateau marmont which is If anyone's been to L.A. and even just the mystique around this hotel, it's the place you want to be, but you also want to be embraced there and only a certain echelon of people, I think, truly feel at home there. And that's very famous people. There's an incredible section in the book where you talk about power and how I think from the outside, we all we think actors are so powerful because they're so famous. But actually, you talk about the structures of power, and that is mostly male directors and producers. What was it for yourself moving to LA and starting to gradually witness and understand an entire dynamic going. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that that scene because that was something that was very interesting to me after I first arrived in LA, just to realize that I think from afar, outside of like the entertainment industry, I think most people think of actors as like the most celebrated um, side of Hollywood. And I think on the outside, that's true. But when you're actually in LA and in some of these spaces like the Chateau Marmont or even parties at people's houses, it's interesting that I think actors almost feel like the lowest on the totem pole in terms of power in LA. 
um, and they get sort of like the facade of power in, in the media, but it really does seem like it's the producers and the directors who can move a room. That is something that I wanted to explore also at the Chateau Marmont. I'm thinking of all the staff working there and, and LA as a city where so many people come for the entertainment industry, but you know, work jobs that are totally on the periphery and serving these people who have the power, who they sort of aspire to be working with. And I thought that was such an interesting place to explore. Of course, Sophie, because she's a woman and she's a young, you know, attractive woman. She sort of, there's like the illusion that she has that exposure and or in that way that actually doesn't lead to anything. I'd love to talk about this, this man, this producer, mm-hmm. and he's obviously very reminiscent of Harvey Weinstein character. I had written this character of Ray Delaney years before Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement really took hold. It was so interesting to watch that play out and to realize that like, I was sort of touching on something that I hadn't even seen in some ways, like the extent of it and and exactly what Sophie was feeling in that situation. Um, Just because of having my own experiences, I had never experienced the level of abusive power like Ray Delaney or obviously Harvey Weinstein, but I felt it. Um, And I had so many meetings that I thought were like professional meetings as an expiring writer and then it turns into the person on the other side treats it like a date and then you really flip that into like shame for thinking that it was anything but a, a date you know and and it was always perfectly fine and I was very lucky in that way but it makes you with, like sort of withhold feeling like you're you're allowed to to step into a space as a professional and not as like a young woman in LA, I think, in a way that I think kept me from sharing work for a long time. It kept me from like really stepping into feeling confident as a writer um, because there's such a sort of power dynamic thrust upon like young women in LA, I think. It takes a lot of intention to sort of like go against that. I totally agree. And I think we connected so much I think having both worked in hospitality and when Stephanie Danler came on the podcast the first time to talk about Sweet Bitter you and I kind of had a moment I feel similarly that having been a server for so long at these restaurants that were filled with celebrities and powerful people and you do absorb a culture or a power dynamic we often think that that proximity to power is going to help us. And actually, the best thing you can do is almost stay away from being involved and just be introduced through your work. It it feels like a trap or something. I feel like my experience in LA was very much, I was really excited to meet a lot of people that I really admired and had admired from afar for their work and, and, was amazed at how sort of small some of these circles are. So it felt very exciting to be, you know, entering into some of them. But I felt very much like I needed to ask for permission to say I was a writer. I don't even know that it was anyone's fault. It's just sort of the culture in L.A. and and in lots of lots of places and lots of industries. For Sophie in particular, I was really interested in the fact that she's a ballerina and so much of ballet is about this like control and it sort of just feels like she's on the edge of something constantly. Ray Delaney, I think, in some ways picks up on that and uses it. That was something that I noticed when 
you know, the, all the stories around Harvey Weinstein really broke was just how many women blamed themselves for be, for getting into the situation that he put them in. And of course, Ray Delaney almost has no idea the, the harm he's caused. Something you said just struck me and it was about how I think there's this refrain from men that is as if I would have been really interested in mm -hmm. your work. Mm -hmm. And that seems to keep coming up. Like, did you really think mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your script? Why isn't young women's creativity mm -hmm. taken seriously in the same way that a young man's mm -hmm. is? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, that's such a good point. It's so true. And it, I think I had so many experiences where I met someone that I respected so much and who, you know, expressed interest in what I was working on and what I was writing. And, and then, you know, later it became very clear that, you know, they were interested in going on a date or something like that, that to the, to the point where I, I can think of a couple examples of people that I look back now and, and, you know, I had met them and they expressed interest in my work and I never sent them anything. I never, you know, got back to them or anything because I was just so sort of scarred by having those kinds of experiences. And it just took such a toll on my own, like, vulnerability and and like um confidence that you need to do something that feels like such a risk and to put yourself out there by showing your work and it's just the this sort of insult to your self-worth when someone makes it so clear that they have you know why would you think I was interested in your work I'm you know so and so I'm not interested in you for that reason it's like that's such a cruel and really damaging thing to hear as a young woman. I, th I hope that that's changing. And I hope that it's, you know, even that that was sort of probably um, six years ago or something that I was really in that position. So I hope that maybe, you know, since then it's been changing. And, um, but I, it's such a hard thing to overcome and to sort of step into as a young woman trying to do something creative. Well, you've, written your novel now and you are adapting it for the screen what's that process been like it's been it's been really interesting for me it's like feels like a different part of my brain that's working when I'm trying to you know write something for screen when I'm writing fiction I'm really following the story on the sentence level and and looking back later and revising it later to give it structure and to see what I'm working with and it it doesn't feel like that's as, as um, possible in screenwriting, at least f from my experience of it. So, so much of what I love about writing in general is like the language. And so that has been a challenge just to think about not sort of putting as much into the language as putting it into like what will translate to the equivalent of that on screen. Um, but yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, even just I've always heard when sharing this book or just what it's about that it would you know, work really well as a TV show or a movie. And it's been really eye-opening, like even just how much has to sort of shift to, to make something work on screen because you don't have the benefit of interiority in the same way. It's been really nice to collaborate too. I thought was just the best part for me to like invite other people into the process and um, to benefit of, you know, other people's perspectives, even just showing me what I was doing or where I might've stopped short or just sort of poking at places that were interesting. Well, it's interesting to think of trying to have other people jump into your perspective and then give notes because, well, that isn't what the whole book is about, but the whole book is about ideas of 
being in someone else's experience. I want to go back to talking about how we perceive ourselves versus how other people perceive us. And there's an incredible line in the book where you write, no one wants to see themselves through another's eyes. And I think particularly when we're in love or we've found a partner, we often plead with them to tell us exactly what they think, either of us or a situation, or I really want to know exactly how you feel. And I've more and more recently (laughs) thought, maybe I don't want to know exactly how you feel. But there is a character in the book who takes someone else's drug and gets to experience their memories for themselves. What do you think the consequences are of inhabiting someone else's memories? And do you think we ever, like this quote says, it's almost like, be so be careful what you wish for. Yeah, it's such a, um, like, enticing possibility to take the memory extraction of someone that you're so close to. The character who takes their partner's mem, they describe it like instead of like listening to their favorite song, they had learned to play the notes or something. Yeah, it's such an enticing opportunity. You you would think to take the mem of someone that you love and feel like you share everything with already. But I think it is definitely, you know, when you actually consider it, it's a very dangerous and and, and, and very sort of violating thing. You know, we guard so much from what we share, even with those we love the most. And it's sort of how we maintain our relationships in some ways. If you're a kind person, I think a lot of that kindness comes from like... Um, protecting Yeah, them. protecting them and, and, and deciding what, what they should hear. And what, I mean, when you start to think about consciousness, you can feel all these different layers that come up. And I think kindness is like an upper layer in some ways. And we all have the layer that might be, you know, very quiet, but you know, you, you wouldn't want to, to expose someone that you love to, to a passing thought that you would never share. You it's know? interesting because both Sophie and Lucian are artists and we've spoken a lot about how Sophie struggles with being taken seriously and yet Lucian's having a very different experience. Yeah, it's, it's like they're sort of opposites in that way because he is being given all the opportunities and sort of feeling like he can't deliver because of his own, you know, shame and his own, you know, questioning of his talent, where, you know, whereas Sophie is actually very confident in her, her talent and has worked so hard that I think she doesn't necessarily struggle in the same way as Lucian does with that. Um, and yet she has to deal with the more sort of, you know, not being taken seriously. Um, and so many of the characters in the book, I think, are you know, creative and, and creatively driven, like Lucian's mother is a painter. Um, even Dr. Sloan, I think, though she's, you know, a doctor and, and heavily invested in the science of this drug, I think she almost sees that as like her art, the way that she can treat and um, shape the future of memory. There's like such an intersection between art and science in so many ways. So I sort of wanted to like unite all these characters in some ways with that like creative impulse and practice and like all the different ways that it can vary between mediums but also just between sort of personality types and it was like a fun way to to put some of my like fear and frustration and writing into these different characters at different points I'm a huge fan of uh, like modern sort of gaga dance and all of that and I think it's such a 
beautiful play between that restraint and like total abandon and some and you need to have that precision to make that like abandon look as intentional and like incredible as it does oh and it's so surprising mm -hmm. are you a dancer yourself no I did ballet when I was very little and I'm like the least flexible person in the world so I had no future but I did know um people in like all through, you know, lower, middle, high school, who were very serious dancers. And I was always just, like, fascinated by the, their sort of community and the, the dedication and the routine um, that surrounded them. And they would always be, like, the nutcracker every winter, and we would all go. And it was just so, like, intoxicating and in, it's so interesting and sort of foreign to me. Um, but when I was in L.A., I was going to, like, a lot of the sort of gaga um, performances and I talked to some of the dancers and all of them were trained in ballet and I thought it was so interesting to have that kind of training and and dedication and then to like break from it in such a uh, unique way and like the the like joy that they seemed to find in that was really cool to me um, that also reminds me that that is what so much of art is mm -hmm. is training mm -hmm. and then a letting go of mm -hmm. that and finding your own way to express yourself, having, mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting when you think of memories and how you sometimes have to, this idea of stripping everything back to build upon mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's the same in writing. It's mm -hmm. the study of, it's the craft of, and then it's a certain point you have to be yourself. Mm -hmm. Even like the process of, of writing this book and how it ended up, I think, this is my first novel and like so much of it I think was like learning how I write a novel I think in some ways. In some ways I had to write like the full book as it came and to get it you know so much of it on on the page and then went back and thought well, if this is about memory which you know as it is in the book it's like memory is constantly in the present and so the the last rewrite I did I, I put everything in present tense and then added that as I mentioned like the center. I never could have written um, something that plays with perspective and time so much without having that foundation to, you know, make, like, cover my wall with, you know, chapters and move them around. And, like, this, to me, at the, at the final stages of editing, it just felt like this puzzle because everything had been moved around so many times. <laughs> but I, I can't imagine, like, any other way that I could have done it. And I think that's something I really learned in the process of writing it is just, like, that that process, for me, I think will always probably look like that. My last question for you is, what lights you up? That's a great question, especially now, you know, coming out of like the past year and a half. I think that I, I love that question so much. I think for me, first of all, being back in New York has been so wonderful. And it, it is a city that I think just lights me up and makes me excited and curious. And I love to wander and just sort of happen upon things around the city and, and it, part of that includes like museums and art and I went to um, Shakespeare in the Park a couple nights ago and that was such a, it was just so incredible to be back at a live performance so I would probably say like the arts and performance and all of that in general like um, I find so much inspiration in like other forms of art that I can't really imagine writing anything without sort of surrounding myself with that as much as possible.
That's a beautiful answer. <laughs> I want to go do a dance class. Oh my gosh, I would any time I would love to. Uh, thank you so much thank for coming. Thank you so much. It's just so lovely. Thank and you to, for having me over to your apartment. And to have you in person has just been glorious. Thank you for listening to my episode with Meredith Westgate. Her novel, The Shimmering State, is available now and you can buy it via a link on our website lituppodcast.com Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.